Thanks for listening to this message from The Block KC. The Block KC exists to help young adults build their lives on what counts. We believe that is Jesus and what God has revealed in His Word. We'd love to see you next Thursday, 7 p.m. at Lenexa Baptist Church. Now, let's listen to this week's message. Block in City, welcome back. How we doing? If you have a copy of God's Word, open up to Colossians 1. Uh, as you find your way there, I want to again, I want to show hands because I want to see it. Who here is a Chiefs fan? Let's go. Come on. Big week. Who here is not a Chiefs fan? Boo. Can we boo people? Yeah, we can. Uh, big weekend. Very big weekend coming up. Clearly, I'm a Chiefs fan. If you could not tell, I like the Chiefs a little bit. Uh, here's a picture of me actually last month, 2024, coldest Chiefs game in history. My wife and I went with our community group. It felt like the apocalypse. As I was gearing up to get out of the car, I thought I was going to war. That's the images that were flashing through my head. Um, on the right is me 30 years ago. Uh, that's my first Halloween. I was dressed up as Marcus Allen, who's an old Chiefs player. So you can tell I've been a Chiefs fan for almost three decades now. I'm about to turn 30 next month, which is kind of crazy to think about. But Chiefs fan my whole life. And something weird I've noticed as I've been a Chiefs fan is that I'm regularly influenced by the Chiefs. And that's clear. You're like, no done, Nick. You are wearing a Chiefs jersey on stage. It's clear you love the Chiefs. But the weirdest thing has happened. Anyone relate to this? As the Chiefs have gotten better, you notice like a little bit more confidence in how you walk around town. Like over the last couple of years, I walk around and I'm like, yeah, like I'm a Chiefs fan. So what? What do you want to do about it? To other Chiefs fans, I don't know why I'm trying to post up against other Chiefs fans. But I just notice myself walking with a little bit more swagger. Not entirely sure why that is. I haven't done anything to earn that. Uh, something else. I appreciate the brands that Chiefs players endorse. I see head and shoulders on the shelves at the grocery store, and I'm like, Patrick Mahomes uses head and shoulders. I appreciate that. I've got State Farm as my insurance. That was before the Chiefs. I've had State Farm for forever because my family did. But I look at that, and I'm like, yes, the official insurance of the Kansas City Chiefs. Not true, but that's what I want. Even Taylor Swift. Any Swifties out here? Big Swifties? Guys, you can raise your hands, too. So... I've never been a hater. Like, I've always appreciated Taylor Swift's music. I would not have called myself a Swifty. But as she has dated Travis Kelsey, I'm like, yeah, Taylor Swift is our girl. Like, she belongs to Kansas City. She is a part of the kingdom. We got to welcome her in. Like, I feel it's my duty. Taylor, if you are listening to this, you are welcome to come to the block anytime. We love to have you. You don't even have to sing. I'm just drawn to what the Chiefs do. My view of the Chiefs changes how I live. And this illustrates a very common known fact. The value of our hearts dictates how we live. The value of our hearts dictates how we live. It's very simple. We all know this. People, music, money, whatever it is, we realize that what we value, we are often drawn towards. We move towards those things that are deep in our hearts. And this is supremely true when it comes to knowing God. See, the Bible teaches that in Genesis 1, humanity is made in the image of God. It teaches in Ecclesiastes 3 that God has put eternity in our hearts. We think about things of eternity. 
Acts 17, it said that God gives us life. He puts us in creation that we might seek him and feel our way to him. Humans have this innate desire to seek God because it's put in our hearts. Whether we know it consciously or whether we know it subconsciously, our view of God is also going to shape how we live because it's what is deep inside our hearts. The theologian A.W. Tozer, who was a pastor, theologian, author, he says this, What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. Think about that. What we think about God is the most important thing about us because if at our core of humanity we are designed to move towards God or our view of God, then we are going to move towards whatever our view of that God is. And so it's important to ask ourselves, what is, the, what is our view of God? Who is God? Colossians was written by Paul, the apostle, to clarify the truth about who Jesus was to the hearers in Colossae. If you're not familiar with the background, a lot of false teachers and heretics had been coming into the church, and they had been saying all kinds of claims about who Jesus was. They had been saying that God would never become a man, so therefore Jesus could not be God. Some were saying that there were certain things that were required by God, certain rules you had to follow in order to obtain salvation or to access heaven. Some people thought that Jesus was just some kind of angel. He was a spiritual being, but he wasn't truly God. And this was causing the Colossians to be confused in their heart of where they were moving to. It was causing them to be pulled in a lot of different directions. And it's just as important for us today, too. What you think about God matters deeply. Whether you're here tonight and you are a Christian, or whether you're here tonight and you're just investigating your faith, what you view about God matters. Why? Because if in your mind, if I say God, and you think of a harsh and judgmental being, then you are very likely to believe that you need to obey a set of rules to earn God's love for you. If when I say God, you think of this God who's cold and distant, he's aloof to the things of humanity, then you are unlikely to pursue a relationship with that God. You're going to move towards him, but it's always going to be at an arm's distance. It's always going to be with walls up. Maybe you're here tonight and you view God as ambiguous or unknowable. And you're likely then to avoid thinking about God at all. Your view of God is always going to be uncertainty. And so the course of your life is always going to be towards uncertainty. There's a study done by Pew Research. It's actually a non-religious, non-partisan research group, despite the name. Uh, It was released just two weeks ago. So this is fresh off the press. And it said that 30% of young adults would describe themselves as religious nuns. Not the ladies who wear the fancy clothes. Religious nuns. They have no religious... I'm thank, thank you for laughing. One person. <laughs> but most people don't believe in a specific God. A lot of them would say, I believe in a God, but they'd say, I don't believe in the God of the Bible. I don't believe in the God of a specific organized religion. I just believe in God as a general spiritual concept. And almost half of those people would say that there's just no time to learn about God. There's no need. I'm too busy doing all the things that young adults do. I'm too busy hanging with my friends, trying to pursue a career, trying to get swole, trying to watch the Chiefs games. I don't have time to pursue the things of God. 
And can I tell you tonight that if your soul is moving towards your mental image of God, whether you fall in the unsure, no-need camp, or whether you've been following God for 10 years of your life, you need to know God deeper. You need to understand deeper the truth of who God is because it will shape the course of your life. And I'm not talking about knowing facts about God. Or I'm not talking about being able to say, oh yeah, God is this, this, and this. Because I know that this, this, and this verse says this. I'm talking about personally knowing God deeper. Having a personal relationship with him. Why is this? Why do we need to know God? Why should we move towards God? Well, if God claims to be love, and if God claims to be good, and if God claims to be the offer of life, then that means if you want love, if you want goodness, and you want life, you need to move towards their source, which is found in the God of the Bible. And so that's my goal for tonight. It's just that we would know God, not my thoughts about God, not society's thoughts about God, but what God himself says about himself in his word. And then that, that knowledge of God's character would change the way that we live, first and foremost, just by growing our desire to know this God. Just by growing our desire to be deeply connected every day to this God. And then that would increase our desire to live for Jesus day in and day out. And my hope is that we grow in our mental image of God, we would move towards God, and we'd see how it connects to every area of our life, big or small, and ultimately that would just cause us to praise God more and more. That that would just cause us to look at God in awe and wonder. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight eager for you to reveal yourself to us. God, thank you for giving us your word, God, that we could know you. God, that we're not left in the dark, that we're not left to the whims of whatever we might think about you. But you've told us the truth about who you are. And God, I pray for all of us. God, I pray that if there's some of us here who have heard this 80 times, God, I pray that we would continue to understand what these things mean deeper and deeper. That our view of you would grow and grow and our awe of you would increase. God, and I pray if there's someone here who's skeptical or unsure about who you are, God, would you just reveal yourself to that person? God, would your spirit work in their hearts even tonight? And God, would all of us be changed by this? Would we behold you in your word and would we walk away as people who do it and people who are changed because we want to build our lives on the truth of your word? We pray all this through Jesus' name. Amen. All right, starting off in Colossians 15, it picks up and Paul is going to talk about the characteristics of Jesus. He says this, He, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Bam, right there. That is so much. He just dropped a theological bomb on us. I mean, you could go through that sentence for weeks and not really fully begin to digest everything that this, this is saying about the truth of God. And so we're going to take just a little bit tonight and try to scratch the surface of who God is based off of that. What he's saying is that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, which simply means that Jesus is the visible and physical figure of the spiritual God. Man, humanity, each of us, we were created in the image of God, we we're created to reflect things about God, his ability to think, to feel, to create, to have a will. But Jesus is the image of God. 
He is the full representation of who God is. And there's so much truth in this one statement, but what Paul is saying is that the creator God, the eternal God, the almighty God that's described in the Old Testament, that has left clear evidence himself throughout all of creation, Jesus Christ is that God. And the more you know God's word, the more that's going to mean to you. If you're here tonight and you're unfamiliar with the Bible, then you might not know the lengths that the Bible goes to describe the glory of God. So just to put us all on a level playing ground, listen to just a couple descriptions from around the Bible. They're not going to be on the screen, so just track with me. So in Genesis, God exists before the beginning, and he speaks light into the world, and it happens. And then he speaks, and things are created out of nothing. And he calls it good. In Exodus, God makes the Israelites at a mountain, and earthquake and smoke and fire surround this mountain that God chooses to reveal himself to the Israelites at. In the Psalms, it says that God handmade the stars, stars that are thousands of times bigger than our sun. God crafted those himself. To him, those are small. He put them together himself. In Isaiah 6, God is described as being on his throne. Spiritual beings are yelling out, holy, 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 which means set apart. There is anyone unlike God. There's no one like him. And the earth shakes and smoke comes out from the throne of God. In Revelation, there's a sea of glass that surrounds the throne of God. And it's said that the new heaven and the new earth will not even need a sun or moon or any light because God is so glorious that his presence alone will cast out any darkness. Anytime in the Bible someone comes into the presence of this God, has a vision of God, they fall down on their face instantly because they are overwhelmed by the glory of God in their own unworthiness and sinfulness. And this is just a taste of how the Bible describes the glory of God. And what Paul is saying is that this invisible God, this all-powerful, eternal, all-knowing, all-present God, Jesus is that God. Jesus is God made flesh. And then Paul goes on to talk about God's role in creation. Says in Colossians 1.15, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, these are uh, representations of spiritual beings. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things and in him all things hold together. So what he's saying, when it says firstborn, it's talking about firstborn as a rank, not firstborn as an origin. It says that Jesus is before all things, so he's clearly eternal. He's, he's God himself. But Jesus is the son of, he's God the son, which means he's part of the Trinity, which is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. All of those are God. If you're not familiar with the teachings on the Trinity, it's uh, one of the most dearly and closely held Christian doctrines. We would hold that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God, but they are not all each other. So it's one God, three persons, and if you're sitting here like, could you have an illustration? I I really, I wrestled with this. I don't think there's an illustration that really fully summarizes the Trinity. And so I'm not going to try to, and I'm just going to say that it's something that our limited human minds cannot fathom. It's beyond our ability to comprehend the true nature of God. 
But something we can grasp is creation. Because God gave us senses to understand these things. And so he talks about creation. Paul says Jesus is first in rank over all creation. By his hand, all things were created. The physical world, the spiritual world, everything. And it was through his power. It was for his glory. For him, all things were created. Everything was designed to point praise towards the creator God. It says that Jesus is before all things. He's eternal. He's always existed. And in him, all things hold together. Which means at this very moment, Jesus is holding all things together. Jesus is the one who's keeping us breathing. He's the one who's, the sun is shining. He's continuing the rotation of the earth. His power is what holds everything in creation together. And I think this raises a valid question because the more that we learn about science, the question is, okay, well, how does that interact with things like gravity? Or how does that interact with things uh, like magnetism or like nuclear physics? If God is holding all things together, and we know that these forces are also holding all things together, if you're here and you're like, I'm kind of a scientifically minded person, I want to know how these things interact, I want to introduce you to someone. This man is Max Carl Ernst Ludwig Planck. Luke, I'm glad you didn't name your son that. He was born in 1958, and he's known as the originator of quantum theory or quantum science. I had no idea quantum science was this old. I was like, wow, that is good to know. Uh, degree in microbiology from K-State. I'm not going to try to scratch the subject of quantum physics. That's not why we're here tonight, but I do want to read you guys this quote. Planck says, as a physicist, that is a man who is devoted this whole life to a holy prosaic, which means dull or not poetic, science, the exploration of matter, no one would surely suspect me of being a fantist or an impractical person, a dreamer. And so, having studied the atom, I am telling you that there is no matter as such. All matter arises and persists only due to a force that causes the atomic particles to vibrate, holding them together in the tiniest of solar systems, the atom. And then he goes on to say, yet in the whole of the universe, there is no force that is either intelligent or eternal, and we must therefore assume that behind this force there is a conscious, intelligent mind or spirit. This is the very origin of all matter. A man who knew more about the atom than I think you and I would ever hope to. He looks at that and he looks at the way and he says, there has got to be someone intelligent behind this. There has got to be a God, something that is holding this all together. He said elsewhere, the belief in God is the inconclusion of studying science. Everything points towards God. In fact, this is even true today. According to a study done last year by the NCBI, said that a third of all scientists would claim to be atheists or agnostic. And I think a lot of times uh, you might have heard, oh, every scientist doesn't believe in God. It's irrational too. And in fact, it's just the national average of people who are atheists. Most scientists would say, yeah, there's got to be some kind of intelligent creation. There's got to be some type of intelligent creator. That's what people believe today. Now, why do I tell you this? Because this is not a science club. You guys did not come here to learn about Planck lengths, to learn about atoms, to learn about any of this. So why does it matter that Jesus is the one that is keeping all things together? 
What does that mean about our job stress? What does that mean for my day-to-day life? What does that mean for relationship drama or for all the different things that are going on on a daily basis? What does it mean that the God of the universe holds all things together? It means that God is intimately and personally concerned with you. Point number one, the eternal, all-powerful Jesus cares deeply for your daily physical needs. When Jesus was on this earth and he was teaching, he, he took the people and he told them to look at the sparrows. These were birds in that day. They were sold for a penny, half a cent. And he says, look at how God feeds the sparrow. Are you not more valuable than they? And he tells them to look at the grass that had these beautiful purple flowers. And he said, not even King Solomon, the richest king in the history of the world, was clothed like that grass. And if it's here today and gone tomorrow, how much more will your heavenly Father clothe you? So my question for you is this. Do the stresses and cares of this life drive you to seek refuge in the God who is over it all? The God who holds all things together. The God who is before all things. The God who made all things. Or do you believe the lie that God doesn't care? There's this teaching heresy in Colossae that the spiritual world was good and the physical world was bad. And the goal then was to escape the physical world and just make it to the spiritual world. Because surely if there was a God, he wouldn't care about this world because it's bad. And sadly, this lie is very pervasive today, even in the church. A lot of people, Christians even, they look at their homes, they look at their jobs, they look at their bodies, and I think, man, it's it's not really important. This doesn't have as much value. What God really cares about is how much I pray. What God really cares about is just how many people I try to get into heaven. That's what God really cares about. But the things of this earth, God's not concerned with those things. Those things are not important. Those things are, they're going to go away so God doesn't care about them and I don't really need to care about them. And on the flip side, you might be in the other camp. You might be sitting here thinking, no, 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 no. The physical world is very important to me. I'm concerned about my job. I'm concerned about making ends meet. I'm concerned about my comforts here and now. And since we move towards our view of God, what you have is people who are either moving away from the physical stewardship of the responsibilities of this life or people who are moving away from their spiritual relationships to God because they think God doesn't care about either one. And it could not be farther from the truth. God says, I want you to look at my glory and my strength and my power, and I want you to come to me, and I want you to just ask that I would take care of you. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Peter is one of Jesus' closest friends, and he says when you look at the mighty hand of God, when you look at the mighty hand of Jesus, You should choose to humble yourself, and the way that you do that is by entrusting all of the concerns of your life to that God. He says, you say, God, I need you to take care of me. 
God, I need you to take care of the things of this world, and I need you to take care of all my spiritual needs too. Because God wants to bring you into his glory so you have a deeper connection with him. That he may exalt you and we may cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. There are two specific specific applications from this. One and two. Grow your awe of God. Grow your dependence on God. Growing your awe of God is straightforward. It's not easy, but it's pretty clear. Something that I've found to be very helpful for myself, I've done through the years as I set aside times where I can just praise God and reflect on the magnitude of who he is. I get a Bible, I flip open to a passage like Colossians 1, and I just look for everything that tells me about the greatness of God. I look at it and I say, okay, by him all things were created. God, that's amazing that all things were created by you. God, all things you are before all things, God. You hold together all things. And I just sit there. And I sit back and I think about what that means. And I let the awe and wonder of God grow in my heart. And it takes time. And it takes getting away from distractions. But you sit there and you grow your awe of God. Which then in turn causes us to grow our dependence on God. I was just reminded of this yesterday. The last week has just, it's been heavy with a lot of different things that I feel like I've been trying to take care of. And I feel like I've got a lot on my plate. And I'm trying to balance them all well. And my problems kept on getting bigger and bigger. And I continued to get more and more stressed. And I continued to feel like I just need to work harder and harder to solve all these things. And I was reminded that when my view of my problems are big, my view of God is often small. But when my view of God is big, then my view of problems are often small. Because the more I realize that God is in charge of everything, that God is bigger than everything, the more it's okay for me to ask him for help. Because he can. Because he's powerful. Because he cares for you. And then I see him take care of me. I see him show up. And sure, we are responsible to do our part. But there have been things in my life that as I've entrusted them to God, I've taken a step back and, and thought, God, you had to have done that. I, I couldn't have done that myself. And I realize God has taken care of me. And I think if we take a step back and we say, God, I need you, and we ask him for specific things in our life, we find that God answers. We find that God looks after us. And then that in turn grows our awe of God, in turn. And this is what our mental view of God does. If we view God as this great and glorious God, we are going to move towards that God with the concerns of our daily life. And so Paul is highlighting to the Colossians, Jesus is God and he physically reigns over this world. But then he's also going to share, Jesus is also a man who spiritually redeems the world. We've seen Jesus' deity and we've seen his power, and now we also get to look at Jesus' humanity and his perfection. Read with me in Colossians 1.18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Paul is saying here, Jesus is the head of the church body. And the church is made up of humans, in case you didn't know. 
And Jesus is the God-man who is in charge of the church. He's God, he's worthy to be worshipped, and he's man, he's able to identify with us. He is the God-man who unites us with God. He's the head of the church. And he repeats himself in a different way. He says, Jesus is the firstborn of the dead, or he is the rightful ruler, the head over all who have been raised to new life spiritually. And so that in everything, spiritually and physically, Jesus would be preeminent, of most importance, king over all. And the false teachers in Colossae, they're saying, man, Jesus wasn't really God, but then they're also saying Jesus also wasn't really a man. So if he's not a man, then there's no way that he can die for humanity. He can't do that. Jesus was just some being who showed us the way, but we have to earn our way to God. And Paul says, no, the fullness of God dwells in him. Which means the fullness of God's perfection and power, it says, was pleased to dwell in him. That means that Jesus was perfect in every way, without sin. God was fully pleased with him. There was no sin in him. Fully God, fully man, fully powerful, fully perfect. I mean, think about that. Take a step back and just let your awe of God grow. You have this eternal, holy God who has access to all power and knowledge. And he is born as a baby and grows up as a perfect, sinless man. And what does this man do? For 30 years of his life, he just trains as a carpenter. He's a skilled, physical laborer. Don't let anyone ever tell you that work is not important to God. Jesus spent most of his adult life working. But Jesus does not stop there because after 30, something shifts and he begins to teach people spiritually. He begins to call disciples and followers and he teaches them the truth about God's kingdom. And he starts to heal diseases physically and he starts to forgive sins spiritually. He does all kinds of miracles that proves he is God. And he gains all these followers who just follow him from town to town. At one point, they try and make him a king by force. But he slips away because he says, no, 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 that's not why I came. This eternal, all-powerful, all-knowing God steps into humanity. Why? Jesus says it himself in Luke 19.11, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This God, this perfect man, he teaches that he needs to die for the sins of the world. He teaches that he's the perfect sacrifice needed. Why? Because there needs to be a ransom. It's the very reason why we can't enter the presence of a perfect God. We said it earlier, we are unworthy. We are sinful. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us deserve to get into God's presence. And because we have sinned, there is a debt against our life, and it's the cost of our very life. And so there's this ransom or this reconciliation, morally and spiritually, that needs to take place. And this perfect, all-powerful creator God-man goes, and he willingly turns himself in to his enemies. He willingly faces the scorn of being tortured, of being brutalized, of having his beard ripped out. 
of being mercilessly beaten within an inch of his life. And then he carries a cross, publicly shamed. And he hangs on that cross that he himself helped create at the beginning of the world. And he hangs there and he dies for you and me. But he doesn't stay dead because he defeats death. He's the firstborn of the dead and he is raised to new life and he's alive today at this very moment. And the reason for this, it says in verse 20, is to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God, who takes care of all our physical needs, he dies to reconcile us to himself through his perfect blood. And I think the question as we look at this is why? If we take a step back and we view the magnitude and the glory and the greatness of God, we think, why would Jesus die? Why would he choose to do that? The question grows even more confusing when you look at verse 21. It says, and you, speaking to the Colossian believers, speaking to us as believers, he says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Paul says, as humans, we weren't just in bad shape. Like, we weren't just needing a little bit of help to elevate our game. We were entirely dead. We were alienated or far off. We were hostile in mind. That literally translates to hateful to God. Hating God in our minds and in our hearts. And I don't personally like to think about this. And I think we might think, no, 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 no. I, I don't hate God. I just, I'm, I don't always follow him. I, but I, I wouldn't say I hate God. But the Bible is very clear. Sin is hateful to an almighty, perfect God. When we choose selfishness or pride in our hearts, we are looking at our loving creator and saying, I hate you. I don't want your help. When we are full of envy and lust, we're saying, I hate you. I don't want your goodness. It is hatred towards God himself. It's this picture of these rebellious children who are covered in mud and blood and filth. And they are yelling at their loving father that he is not wanted. And the Bible says, whether we admit it or not, whether it's comfortable to think about it or not, that is every single one of us. But God was rich in mercy and love. And so Jesus died in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Man, that is good news. Jesus died so that you could be holy and blameless and above reproach like a bride in pure white on her wedding day. Spotless, flawless, as though you had done nothing wrong. Why? Because he loves us. Because he chose to love us, and a great, glorious creator God came down to earth and died the death that we deserve, and he conquered death in order to bring us into his presence and joy. Point number two, the glorious, all-perfect Jesus paid greatly for your eternal spiritual needs. 
And I, I think the temptation is to look at this and just say, yeah, 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 no, I've heard that. Like, I, I grew up hearing this, I've heard this, I've been to the block a couple times, I've heard that. The Colossian Gnostics, uh, they were philosophers of the day that were wrong, and they rejected this truth because they said, no, 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 it's not Jesus' death that saves us. It's this deeper spiritual knowledge. It's understanding the secrets and the mysteries of the world. And when we listen to this and we think, man, I don't, that's great that Jesus died on the cross for me, but I want the deeper theology. I want the deeper spiritual realities. Paul's saying this is the mystery. This is the deeper reality. This is the secret that God wants to reveal to us. And we have to be very careful that we never see the truth of the gospel as basic or entry level because God is saying this is everything that we believe. This is the core of what we stand on. This isn't first grade stuff. This is graduation. And so when we view God this way as this God who loves us and died for us, it changes the way we live. Because if we follow a God who's willing to lay down his own life for us, who's willing to send his own son to die on the cross for our sins, we are going to move towards that God with awe and respect. We're going to want to move towards that God and follow him. Our lives are going to be shaped by this defining truth. And that's actually what the rest of the book of Colossians is about. What Paul is doing is he's setting up here, here's what we believe about Jesus, here's what we believe about God, here's what we believe about our sin and his death for us. And for the rest of the book, I'm going to tell you guys what that means. But for tonight, we're going to talk about three ways that the gospel transforms our life, very briefly as we close. And they come from those words of being holy, blameless, and above reproach. Holy, if in God's eyes you are holy then you can always be with God. So because your sin is paid for, you can always be in God's presence. At any point, a follower of Jesus has the Holy Spirit living inside them. They have God with them always. And we can seek help, we can seek guidance, we can seek strength or company at any point. And these are all things that as young adults we crave that. We desire to have someone guide us through life. We desire to have someone give us strength. We desire to have someone give us wisdom to help us navigate the ins and outs of life. And God is saying, I am with you always. If you are a follower of Jesus. A practical way that I like to practice this, reminding myself this, is I just ask myself the question, when was the last time I reminded myself that God is with me? And it's taken years to cultivate uh, this truth, but it's helped me grow my dependence on God. It's changed my confidence because I have my Savior with me. I realize God makes me holy. God sets me apart for his presence, and that leads to holiness, which means that I live out the reality of being set apart. And that brings up the second point, blameless, which just means without blemish. If in God's eyes you are without blemish, then you can live the new life. We're going to talk about this in the coming weeks, but Colossians 3 talks about the old self, that hostility towards God, the evil deeds of our minds and of our bodies. And it says that we need to put those to death and we need to put on the new self. I've heard it said a lot of times that a follower of Jesus who constantly does 
the old things, the old hostilities, is like a, a person who's rolling around in the mud, and then they go and they shower off, and they, they're clean, but they put on the muddy clothes again. It's, it's just not fitting. It's not proper. It doesn't make them themselves dirty, but it is gross. It's just not right. It's not fitting. And we know that we're not going to be perfect, but we do make every effort to live differently. We make every effort to live how we are viewed by God, without blemish, spotless. Something that helps me with this, I like to think through God's word as I've read it, and I would encourage you guys, be reading God's word. Don't let this be the only time of the week that you hear God's word. Read it for yourself. But as I read God's word, I ask myself, is there anything in my life that I'm living that isn't the same as this book or is the same as my old life? Is there any way I'm still living the old self or is there any way I'm not putting on the new self? And God uses that to convict me of sin and realize, okay, I I need to put that to death. I need to put that off. I need to throw that away. And that leads then to above reproach. If in God's eyes you are above reproach, then you can remember you are forgiven. And here's the deal. We're putting to death the old self and putting on the new self. We are going to sin. It's just a reality. Every single day I'm reminded of the fact that I'm a sinner because every single day I sin. And it's frustrating and I don't like it. And at times it makes me feel distant from God. But in those times, we need to remind ourselves the comforting truth that we are forgiven completely, fully, and always by God. And we take comfort reminding ourselves that our sin doesn't define us. We have confidence before God. A question that I ask myself when I'm feeling beat up, I just ask myself, Nick, do you know that you're forgiven? What the Apostle Paul says is that it's not enough just to know these truths. Again, we're not just filling up our minds with knowledge about God. But what Paul is saying is, do you have a faith in God? He says this in verse 23. It says, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which is being proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. What Paul is saying there is he's saying, do you have faith in Jesus? Have you in your heart trusted that Jesus is your Savior? Because if you have, you're going to continue steadfastly. All people who have a genuine faith in Christ will have a faith in the end. The Bible is very clear on that. He's not saying, hey, if you work your way through this, if you do it right, then you'll be holy, righteous, and blameless. He's saying, no, if you have faith, then you'll do that. I'll spare you the lesson on ancient Greek. It's called a first-class conditional statement, but it's a statement of certainty. It's saying, if you have faith, you will be saved. But... All faith will persevere to the end. It's not perfect faith, but it's persistent faith. And the question is not if you will stumble. The question is when you stumble, who's the God that you move to? Do you remind yourself that he's a God of mercy and grace and love? 
Again, I hope that this has done something to grow our awe and wonder of God. I hope that you walk away from tonight looking at God thinking, I want to know that God deeper. Whether you've been following him your whole life or whether you're just investigating God tonight. But can I tell you, if that's you and you have not made the decision to follow him, tonight is the night. Do not wait to experience the goodness of God personally. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we we ask that you would continue to show us who you are. God, thank you for your goodness. God, thank you for the fact that you have created all things. God, you are before all things. God, you are the eternal God. God, thank you for sending your son, your image, God, to walk amongst us. God, to understand our, our lives and to be familiar with our sufferings, God, our weaknesses, but without sin. God, I pray that we would continue to be in awe of this truth. God, I pray that we would continue to be wowed by the glory of the gospel, that you would die for us, that you would die for me. And God, help us to live out of that. God, help us to see that this is the mystery that Paul talks about, God, that this is the deepest truth that we will ever know. And then, God, in our lives, would we move towards that God that we see in your word? Would we move towards the God who loves us? Would we view you accurately for who you are? God, we need you to do this in our hearts. We can't do this ourselves. So God, I pray that we would be stable in the faith, God, because of you. Thank you that you're the one who brings us from beginning to end, that you are the one who completes the good work which you have begun in us. But God, I pray that we would be willing partners with you. God, I pray that we would set our minds apart to focus on the truth of your word, God, that we wouldn't be influenced by other views of you or or statements about God or statements about ourselves, but that we would focus our mind on you, who you say you are in your word, and that we would live out of that truth, that we would grow in awe and dependence on you for our physical needs, and that we would praise you now and forevermore for the forgiveness of our sins and for taking care of us. We love you. We pray all this through the confidence we have in Jesus. Amen.